I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 18. And tonight is the second message in the opening verses of this 18th chapter. The scene that is before us is at the end of the tribulation, uh, just before the final battle in the world, which is called the Battle of Armageddon. And we've been on a long journey in the book of Revelation ever since the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, began to open the seals on the seven-sealed book. That was in chapter 6. And when that first seal was opened, the world was plunged into a terrible time of tribulation, unlike anything that's ever been seen before in all of human history. And I hope that you remember that we call the scroll Redemption Scroll, or it is the title deed to the earth. And that scroll is actually the plan by which God reclaims the world so that he puts it back into a state of innocence that existed before the fall of Adam. The world will be purged from the curse, and God is going to take at least 1,007 years to accomplish that. And sin will be rooted out of this world from every corner. And also, in order to do that, every sinner must be rooted out. And that is not going to be a pleasant process. In the first seven years of tribulation, Satan is cast down from his lofty perches. He's cast down to the earth, and he's going to stir up men to do the worst evil imaginable. And the Holy Spirit's restraining influence at that time will be withdrawn from the world, and then men will begin to live to the depths of their depravity. And when people are deceived by Satan, they actually think that they can overthrow God. And so with Satan's help and with the apostate religion's help, they will plan and scheme to take over the world. And the first step in that scheme is to uh, unite all of the religions into a worldwide apostate religion, which will help the Antichrist to rise to power. And he'll use the apostate church until uh, he's finished with it. He'll use it to his best advantage until he's done with it. And then with the help of combined governments of the world, he will destroy it. And then he'll start a new religion. And the new religion has him as God who rules in a commercially successful kingdom. In chapter 17, we saw the rise of that ecclesiastical system known as Mystery Babylon the Great. It's that centuries-old system of Babylon that will finally saturate the entire world. But also in chapter 17, we see that it's destroyed. And the strange thing about its destruction is the glee that's caused by it. And what the destroyers don't know, that when they destroy ecclesiastical Babylon, they're also helping to seal their doom. And so they believe then that they have the best possible scenario set up. They have political and religious power. They have all of that firmly under their control. And so now they don't answer to anyone. But what they don't realize is that everything that they do is actually working into God's already predetermined plan. Uh, Mystery Babylon had tentacles that reached into every area of life and to destroy her actually brings down their own luxury-ridden economy. And so again, they don't understand that every step of this has been ruled by God. They aren't independent. Every part is God's plan. It's all contained in the seven-sealed scroll, and it's just like reading a script from a movie. And everything that they do works according to that, to that script, and they follow it to the letter. And that's why that God can declare with certainty that mystery Babylon has been defeated even before the fact and also why he can declare that his own kingdom will rule on the earth even before the fact. So it's spoken of as done. Now I've titled 
uh, these messages, we have three last week and then this week and then next week. It's the economy, stupid. Because like greedy, blind people today, people will in the tribulation believe that money is actually more important than their souls. So we look at this in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, is where we're studying tonight. It says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now what I want to do first tonight is sort of catch us up a little bit from last week's message. And we began with the glory of God. Verse number 1 says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened, with his glory. After these things, the scripture says, and that means after the fall of this religious system that we find in chapter 17, there is another terrible fall that's about to take place. And so an angel with God's authority, an angel with God's power, an angel with the brilliance of the reflected glory of God steps out of heaven. And the end of verse number one says that the earth is lightened with his glory. And that means God's glory Every corner of the globe is caught in this blazing spotlight above the brightness of the sun, as the Apostle Paul would say it. And this is stunning, because darkness has previously enveloped Babylon. There was a thick darkness that could even be felt, and it was the result of one of the seven vials of wrath that was dumped on the world during the last weeks of the tribulation. And so like flipping on a switch in a totally dark room, that light penetrates the darkness, it dispels it all in a flash, and then God's glory is seen by all. And then in the second verse, we find the purpose of this angel. He had an announcement to make, and so in a voice that sounds like a sonic boom over the entire world, he announces the fall of Babylon. Ecclesiastical Babylon has already fallen. They rejoiced to see it go. But this announcement really shakes them worse than Job. You remember what happened to Job? How that in just a short amount of time, he heard that his family had been killed. He heard that his house was destroyed and all of his wealth was taken away. Only these people don't have anything to fall back on. Job knew the Lord, and so he could depend upon him. But these people have no hope, they have no peace, they have no hint of happiness, because what they love most is about to be destroyed. They love money, they love gold, they love prosperity, they love luxury, and all of that is about to be taken away. Everything that they have confidence in is to be destroyed. So the angel cries out, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And the construction of that sentence in the Greek gives the meaning of a future event that is so certain that it's said to be already done. And so there is no stopping this. What they love most and what they sacrifice their souls to build will crumble in an instant. It takes time to build a city. It takes time to build an empire. But God brings all of it down with one swing of his wrecking ball. And that is really a very good lesson for us to learn. Now, we'll get into it a little bit more later. But Christian people today have jumped onto this bandwagon of prosperity 
And what we have forgotten about is the Scripture says that we have been ordained to persecution. So we love luxury, and when our luxuries, when our economy is threatened, then what Christians do is they sell their souls to keep it. And so we try to vote into office the most immoral, godless, perverted people imaginable with the promise that they'll be able to help the economy, that they'll put a few more dollars into our bank accounts. Now, the sad thing I think it is for us as Americans today is that the choices that we have in political leaders is between bad and very bad. Those are our choices. And really, neither party cares about anything other than simply getting themselves elected, and they'll do anything they can to make sure it's done. And the American people just go along with all of that because everybody assumes that the answer to all of our problems is our economy. So first of all, we see God is glory or God's glory and God will be glorified. In fact, the earth, the entire earth was designed for God's glory. And so you can rest assured that whatever happens, God will get the glory. Well, we need to move on now to look at this announcement of the angel and see how he characterizes Babylon. And remember, Babylon does have two parts. There's a religious side to it. That's the spiritual. And then there's also an economic side, and that's the physical side of Babylon. And the way that the Bible describes Babylon in these verses is that it is a den of devils, a den of devils. Verse number 2 says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, there's actually some very interesting statements that are made here. And, in fact, there are some very eerie, frightening ones. Do you know there are people that like to play with the devil? They actually think that it's cool that they dabble in things like the occult. They want to gaze into this freaky, unknown spiritual world. And when people do that, they don't realize that they're dealing with evil. You see, one thing that God never lets us do is his people. He never lets us look into his spiritual world. He never lets us, he never pulls back that curtain and allows us to look into his righteous world. And the reason that he doesn't is because he's given us everything that he wants us to know in the scriptures. And so God's not going to give us any extra revelations. He's not going to peel back heaven and allow us to see there. He's given us everything that we need to know right now in his word. And that's where we go to find out what we want to know. But it appears that God deals a little bit differently with the unseen or previously unseen world of the devil, of the demon world, because there are people who can actually lend themselves to the devil. For example, in the New Testament, we read many times where people were demon-possessed. Demons are fallen angels. And people were very much aware of the presence of these demons. In the book of Acts, Paul encountered a demon-possessed girl. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So here was a young girl who had handlers, and they were actually able to make money off of this demon spirit that inhabited her body. And it's a quite interesting story to see how the devil works through these uh, demon spirits, like the one that possessed this young girl. Here in this scripture, in Acts 16, 16, we find the word spirit of divination. And that actually comes from the Greek words pneumopathona. And pathona is the same word, or same as our English word, python. And what it is a reference to is the Greek god Apollo. Now, if you're interested in things like that, you might 
want to ask our sound men back there to look up a sermon I did in 2005 called The Divining Damsel from the book of Acts. So my point here, though, is that there are really uh, people who seem to think that they have the ability to harness the power of demons. But really, that's nothing more than a trick that Satan plays. And another incident of a demon possession in Acts chapter 19, there were some Jewish exorcists that thought that they had power over demons. And so they tried to cast a demon out of a man. And they tried to use the name of Christ in order to do that. And that demon didn't recognize who they were. He recognized the power of Christ. And so what he did was he energized this man and he gave him supernatural strength. He supercharged the man so that he jumped on top of these exorcists and beat the living daylights out of them. You see, you can flirt with the devil, but never think that you're in control. Satan controls. He's a very powerful spirit. And you have to remember that the demons that he controls are also angels. And they have greater power than you can possibly imagine. So Babylon then is a city that's not controlled by men. This is a city that's controlled by these demon spirits. And men are actually pawns in the hands of the devil. And the devil has got them ready to do what is an impossible task. Babylon is the stronghold for demon activity. And these demons literally are everywhere. Now, a good question we might ask is, where did they all come from? Why are all these demons gathered together in the city of Babylon? Well, if you go back to chapter 9, we find there that there were millions of demons that were released like a horde of locusts from the abyss. And these were horrible creatures. And verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 9 gives us a description. It's a terrible description. And the shapes of the locusts, that's these demons were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were the crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months." And if you read a little bit further than that, you'll find out that there were 200 million more demons that were released. And then we go into chapter 12, and there we find that Satan is cast out of heaven, and all the other demons that were not bound up at the time of the fall of man, those were also cast out to the earth. And so literally, the entire world is filled with demons. Babylon is their empire. And the whole world, with the exception of the elect, God's people has been deceived by them. And then in chapter 16, we find still more demons. In verses 13 and 14, there were demons that worked miracles, and they convinced the kings to send their armies to to Armageddon. And there, God is going to gather them together and trample out their blood like grapes that are in a wine vat. And amazingly, these demons, all of them, are actually working for God. And they don't even know it. So can you imagine living in a place that was filled with this kind of demonic activity? And this is what it will be like in the world of the Antichrist. And of course, he too is a demon-possessed man. It's likely that in the last three and a half years of the tribulation that the Antichrist is indwelled by Satan himself. Now, as we've studied before, there's one thing that Satan can't do. He's not omnipresent as God is, and so Satan can't be everywhere at the same time. Satan is confined to one locality at one time. And so it's impossible for Satan himself to actually tempt every individual or or to possess every individual. 
Instead, he has his demons that do that. But in the tribulation time, it seems that the devil himself will be the one who inhabits the body of the Antichrist, and then uh, that will be just a terrible time having Satan himself there directing everything that goes on. So in this city of Babylon, there's a concentration of devils. The scripture says it is the hold of every unclean, foul spirit. And so like cockroaches, these demons are everywhere. Now, I'm not going to keep you too long with this tonight because uh, to go into the third part of the message, which I want to do next week, would rush me and it pushes way too beyond our time, uh, too far beyond the time. So we're just going to look at a few things here uh, concerning this den of demons that's in Babylon. Now, the first thing that we would notice about the description that's given here is that they are compared to birds. Has anybody ever heard that angels have wings? You know, there are a lot of strange things about angels, a lot of myths about angels, and most of them are really crazier than 3 a.m., and they don't really have any biblical support. But people have imagined a lot of things about angels. Isaiah refers to the end of Babylon in chapter 34 of Isaiah, and there's a lot that's mentioned there about unclean birds, certain unclean birds and other animals that will inhabit Babylon. And there's also mention of something kind of interesting there. There's the mention of satyrs. And in other places in Scripture, that word satyrs is actually translated as devils. And devils there, and that word satyr actually refers to a word that means a goat. And this is kind of a freaky thing because in mythology, a satyr is a half man and a half goat. Now, I I would have showed you some pictures of that tonight, but I was afraid you might get too interested in it and some of you would go home and get out your Ouija boards and try to conjure up one. So I didn't want you to do that. So there's really some scary stuff here. And and there have been a lot of drawings down through the years of these ugly creatures and uh, down through the centuries, people drawing what they think these things look like. And the thing about it is, I'm not so sure that at some point people didn't actually see these things. You see, for uh, the most part, we are pretty much a civilized world today. Uh, Most people in the world, well, the ones that we know at least, are monotheistic. And so we don't really get too much involved with all different types of idols, and especially the types that were worshipped in the Old Testament. And we had a little bit of discussion, not on this subject, but in our forum class this morning, uh, about what went on in in Canaan and those civilizations uh, before the children of Israel went in there and possessed the promised land. And it was a very, very wicked place. There was a lot of, of things going on there. And I'm not so sure that if some of these people weren't actually allowed to see into that spiritual world, that demonic spiritual world, and some of the pictures that we have these types of things could indeed have come from that and much of mythology that we have today. And it's kind of interesting as well to see how that people have flirted with the devil down through the years and as we were talking about just a moment ago, tried to harness the devil's power. And then it's also interesting to see how that Roman Catholicism has been mixed up with this. Uh, During the Dark Ages, if you've seen pictures of many of the Roman Catholic cathedrals that came from that time, you'll notice that there are these creatures that are put up on the buildings called gargoyles. And you know why they put gargoyles on the buildings? Well, they did that to scare the people. And the idea was that there were all these demon spirits that were out in the world that surrounded them, and so they needed to come into the church for protection. But what they didn't realize was the devil was already on the inside. 
And the devil was sitting in the confessional booth and he was hearing confessions and he passed out wafers and he consecrated cups of wine regularly. So the devil was right there on the inside. But let me go back here to what I started with just a moment ago. Uh, the demons here are compared to birds. And the point that I really want to make, that this, this is not a reference to the fact that they have wings, but this is speaking of how these, uh, these demons are like scavenger carrion-eating birds. And what they're doing is they're just waiting to devour their prey. It's like buzzards that, that circle roadkill. And they just kind of wait for the commotion to kind of go away, and then they swoop down and they pick apart that carpus, uh, carcass. Uh, there's another, there's an interesting interpretation of a parable that Jesus gave in which he may have been comparing birds to evil spirits. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, and this is where Jesus gives the parable of the mustard seed. And in this scripture it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. I don't know how many have looked very closely at this parable before, but there are actually two main interpretations that are given of this. And the first one is that the mustard seed is a... Uh, comparison of the growth of that really small seed as it becomes a very large tree, which parallels the growth of Christianity until it actually covered the entire world. And what that would be is where Jesus, with 12 men, started a movement, uh, started a religion which saturated the entire world. Uh, it's covered the whole world now. And there are birds that come and na- nest in the branches of this tree that's grown up. And the only reason that he would mention the birds would be uh, to show us a comparison of how large the tree is. But there's another interpretation of this that makes this refer to the earlier parable in the very same chapter where Jesus is speaking about the parable of the sower. And in one particular part of that parable, it refers to the birds that came and devoured the seeds of the gospel and took them away. And that is actually a reference to demon spirits that work against the soul. And so in the parable of the mustard seed, it may be that Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God will grow rapidly, that it will become very successful, but the rapid growth of the kingdom doesn't always mean that it's enjoying spiritual success. And so the birds would represent demons that infest churches today, and uh, most, mostly in the form of deceiving false prophets. And so that means that you could called the Pope and his cardinals dirty birds, if you like. You know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, you know, in Kentucky, uh, those of us who are Kentucky basketball fans, we hate Louisville. Uh, They're the Louisville Cardinals, and sometimes they're called the dirty birds or the filthy cards. And I don't know, they're kind of like the Duke Blue Devils, possessed, Uh, you know. Enough said about that, I suppose. But this angel says that Babylon is the habitation of devils, and Babylon has always been that way. Uh, Babylon has always had a history of spiritual depravity. Then a second characteristic of this demon infestation is that they cause blindness. And we wonder how in the world could these people be, be sucked up into some kind of plan to think that they could actually overthrow God. 
And we've seen in earlier chapters that the people do acknowledge that what happens during the tribulation period is actually the supernatural working of God. He's the one that causes all of this horrible grief during the tribulation. Now, I want you to listen to a very strange comment that's made in, in chapter 6, which is at the opening of the sixth seal. And when this seal was opened, there was an earthquake. The, the sun became black. The moon uh, looked like blood. There were meteors that began to fall all over the world, like figs that were shaken from a tree that was blown in the wind. The Bible says the heavens are peeled back. The mountains are moved out of their place. And it's very evident that something supernatural is going on. But listen to this very strange statement. It's made in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And the remarkable thing about that passage is that they acknowledge that this is the Lamb of God and that he sits on the throne of God and all of these horrible plagues are a result of his wrath being poured out. And that's just one of the seals. It goes on and on and on. But does that cause men to repent and turn to God? Well, it doesn't. In fact, in chapter 9, it tells us there that after hordes of demons have been released upon the earth to torment these people... Chapter 9 says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can hear nor see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders nor their sorceries nor their fornications nor of their thefts. And you wonder, how can people be so blind as to follow the Antichrist when his kingdom is the cause of God's retribution? And what we have here is a blindness that people are incapable of escaping. There is not one thing that would cause these people to turn uh, to Christ unless God should actually permit it. You see, there are some people that get saved during the tribulation. Some do. And so we wonder, why is it that some do and some don't? Well, there can't be any other explanation for this except that God penetrates their blindness and then he allows them to see. God is the one who actually takes off their blindfold. Paul wrote about Satan's ability to blind the lost in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 8, verse number 12. And I want you to hold on to John for just a few minutes, because we're going to look at a couple of scriptures after we read this. But in John chapter 8, verse number 12, it says there, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now there Jesus is speaking to unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews. These are the very same ones that had seen all of his miracles. And you need to read everything that follows this, because when you read all that intervening material, you come down to verses 43 and 44. And this is also a remarkable scripture about their unbelief, because Jesus says, Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word, 
ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So they couldn't believe him. They couldn't believe his words, even though they had seen all of the great miracles. Why couldn't they believe? Well, Jesus said they belonged to the devil. God did not allow them to believe. Now, you might have a little bit of trouble with that, but Jesus said in verse 47 that they could not hear because they were not of God. And just to drive that point home, I want you to turn over to chapter 12. And here Jesus is speaking of light and truth, and we see here how he controls spiritual blindness. In John chapter 12, verse number 35, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be children of the light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. And that's what it's like in the tribulation. These are people that are even more hard-hearted than the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees never admitted that Jesus was divine. Instead, they just obstinately refused to believe in the miracles, and then in the end, they claimed that he did all of those miracles by the power of the devil. Remember, the Apostle John talks about these specific miracles that he outlines to show the people that Jesus was indeed the Christ, that they might believe on him. That's what he ends up saying in the the 20th chapter, the purpose for why he recorded all these miracles. But also here in the book of John, we find out they absolutely would not believe him, and they said that he did all of this by the power of devils. And so you you don't wonder, well, why didn't they believe? Why didn't the scribes and Pharisees believe? Well, they believed that Jesus was from the devil. But here we have those that are in Babylon, and they're unlike the scribes and the Pharisees because they admit he's the Lamb of God. They admit that he does sit on the throne, and yet they still won't repent. Now, here is no greater proof that it takes God to open up a person's heart before they can believe. God is sovereign in everything. And so these people are blind. Demons keep people in spiritual blindness. This is a kingdom of darkness, a very dark kingdom with spiritual blindness everywhere. And one of the things that keeps people so blind, the reason that they will not look to Christ and be saved is because they have become so wrapped up in the economy. It's the economy, stupid. What's more important than the economy? And so we see what happens here, that God can beat people to death. God can slam you up against a wall. And our leaders can kill babies and they can marry homosexuals, but that's okay because the economy trumps everything. You know, sometimes I wonder, who is blinder? Is it Christians or the people of the devil? Which one of us is truly the blindest? Well, it gets worse because these demons also cause blasphemy. You see, it's not enough that they should 
admit to the lordship of Christ and know that they're actually helpless to do anything against him. And that's truly an amazing thing. They couldn't stop any of the plagues that have come. And yet they march right to Armageddon to the slaughter. And they don't stop at unbelief. And that's because the devil is never content to have a quiet unbeliever. These people blaspheme God. They actually shake their fist in the face of God. In chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and its kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So these are people that are wrapped up in the economy. And we find them here pleading, but their pleas are not for God's mercy. It's not a plea that God would deliver them from their sins and God would end all of this horrible, horrible stuff that's going on around them and God would save them. That's not what they cry for. It's not what they plead for. Instead, what they plead for is their beloved city of Babylon, that decadent city, because they were in love with all of her riches. Verse 3 says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And in verse number 19 it says, And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. That is simply an amazing sight. You know, we wonder how foolish that these people could be. We stand back and we gasp at what happens here. All of these terrible things that have come upon the world. And we look and we say, how ignorant could such people be? How could they ever be so foolish as not to turn to Christ and to trust him? And yet we look at our Christian people today who have received the grace and mercy of God. And we have forgotten God, and we bow down to this world system. And God may be asking us the very same question, how can you be so ignorant? After you have received my grace, my love, and my mercy, after I've done all for you, why do you forsake me to run after a dollar? Why do you forsake me to run after a better economy? God may be asking us the very same question. Well, I'm going to stop with that for tonight, and... We're going to discuss verse 3 a little, in a little more detail a little bit more next week as we talk about how this lust for luxury has turned God's people to an idol. That idol is the luxury, and that's what we tend to worship today instead of the one we should be worshiping. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house tonight and to speak your word. And Lord, as we look into these things, it can be frightening at times. Um, we, we wonder how Christians could read such things as we find in the Bible, what's going to happen to the world, and yet we turn our backs on a daily basis and we don't do what you've told us to do. And we don't honor you. And we don't hold your word up. We don't hold our principles up. But we sell our souls because we think that we need to, ha- to have a better economy or whatever it is that the world has to offer. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for that and we would look to you first and foremost for everything that we need in our lives, and we would worship you and worship you alone. Bless us tonight, Lord, and help us as we sing tonight, and I just pray you might speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.